Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is John Van Dopp, and um, my wife and I, uh, Teresa, we've been worshiping with you for the last year and a half about, and we're just glad to be part of this fellowship. Uh, we're also involved in the life groups, and hearing Adam talk about life groups, we're, uh, we're excited to be involved with that, and we just hope this is a great ministry for, for the congregation here. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. This is the word of the Lord. Like John said, if, uh, if you haven't grabbed your Bibles yet, I always encourage you to have your Bible in front of you. Find 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This week and next week, we are closing out this amazing book of 1 Corinthians. What a ride, right? What a ride. Um, this morning, we're looking at just four verses that presents a topic that I think we often struggle with to address. It's a bit strange. I was thinking about it this past week. Um, we've talked about a lot of very hot button topics over the course of the last eight months. We've talked about human sexuality, marriage, divorce, singleness, homosexuality, transgenderism. We've talked about meat sacrificed to idols. We've talked about having uh, very different opinions on topics and what it looks like to uh, appeal to the consciences of those with weaker consciences. We've talked about women and head coverings. We've talked about leadership. We've talked about um, disputes and disagreements surrounding worship. All these various controversies during a time in which it was rather tumultuous in our community, in our denomination, in our country. Like, I have friends, colleagues in ministry, they said to me, Justin, you're preaching on 1 Corinthians right now? Are you crazy? And yet, in the midst of all of it, I think this might be the topic that has the capacity to create the greatest angst among us. Why? Why? And I think this is something that actually the, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, in his infinite wisdom knew too. Uh, let me give you an example of this. This past week, I opened up Logos, which is my uh, Bible software program. It has uh, concordances. It has Greek and Hebrew texts. It has uh, commentaries. It's filled with resources. And I did just a basic search of topics and how often they show up in Scripture. And so the first one that I looked for was faith. How often does faith show up in Scripture? The answer, 500 times. And so what I take from that is faith is a pretty important topic in the Bible. Would you agree? Faith's pretty important. Then I did a word search on um, prayer. And wouldn't you know it, once again, just about 500 times, 
prayer shows up in the Bible. So that says to me that faith and prayer are really, really important for those of us who are Christians. We, we should know more about that. And then I did a topical search on material wealth and how God instructs us to use it. How many times do you think the Bible talks about that? A hundred times? Two hundred times? Certainly not as many as faith and prayer. Certainly not 500 times. You'd be right. It's not 500 times. Guess how many times it is? 2,300 times the Bible talks about material wealth and how you are instructed to use it. So that at least says to me that the Lord in his infinite wisdom thinks we need a few more at-bats to learn what it means for us to be followers of Jesus in terms of how we use our material wealth. And yet, we often struggle with it. We often have angst about it. Why? Why? Well, I'd like to share with you, it's because Jesus knows the unique danger, spiritually speaking, when it comes to the use of material wealth. So here's the way I put it in your note sheet, the plain main thing. How we use our material wealth reveals where we've placed our hope. Where we've placed our hope. You might say, well, Justin, aren't we just talking about generosity? Aren't we just talking about giving? Aren't we just talking about money? Isn't that like something that we get to choose on our own time? We're not talking about hope. We're not talking about faith. Paul seems to think so. And so does Jesus. Let me show you. Two weeks ago, when we started 1 Corinthians 15, this is the context of everything we've read already. We've heard the reading from John. Everything that we talked about the last two weeks, two weeks ago, we had three questions presented to us. What is faith? What is the gospel? How do I get the gospel into me? How do I become a gospel-shaped person? And then, the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul presents a new question, and it is this. If the gospel is true... How then should I live as a gospel-shaped person? My actions, my behaviors, my speech, my conduct, how I use my time, how I use my wealth, how I use my money and my margin, all of these things that come under the sovereignty of God, how do I use these things as a kingdom citizen of Jesus? And so the question that I present, or the, the, the comment that I shared with you over the last two weeks was this. Our future hope should dramatically shape our present character and the way that we live our lives today. Shouldn't it? Isn't that true? That the death and resurrection of Jesus declares once and for all that Jesus is not just our cosmic consultant, he's not just our guru or our guide or just our friend or anything like that, but that he is the living Lord, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, and one day he will return again in glory and he will judge the living and dead and the dead, and that will be the first day of the rest of our days in eternity with him. Christians believe that. We believe that we're here today and we're gone tomorrow, that our life is, is a mist, says James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so if all of that is true, knowing that each of us are here today and gone tomorrow, the question I invited you to ask over the last two weeks is this, am I making the most of my mist? Am I making the most of my mist? And that is the context of everything that Paul is talking about today. We can't miss that. Otherwise, it's going to feel like some sort of righteous rules or obligations that we have to adhere to. All we're going to hear is law and not gospel. 
But this is where we need to hang our hat. This is where we need to live. How does the gospel shape me and how I use my material wealth? That's what Paul wants to talk about. And that's what I want to make abundantly clear to you today, that we're not just talking about rules, we're talking about faith lived out. That's what he wants us to see. And that's actually precisely what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. Let me read this to you. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus says a really strange thing. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I thought we were just talking about generosity. I thought we were just talking about how we use our money. No, no. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, money always competes with God for the allegiance of our heart. At least according to Jesus, it is the number one competitor to our hearts. Here's why. We go three verses further in Matthew 6, and Jesus says this. He says, you cannot serve both God and mammon, both God and money. And it's interesting to me that the only topic that Jesus ever presents as a competitor to our allegiance against God is money. It's God versus money. It's, it's not sexual desires. It's not uh, allegiances to Caesar. It's not allegiances to the government. It's not even allegiances to Satan. The only competitor that Jesus presents for the allegiance of our heart against God is mammon. How we use our wealth. And that is the reason why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's his focus. In other words, our future hope should dramatically shape our present character and the way that we live our lives today. So my friends, here's the question that I have for you. Where have you placed your hope? Where have you placed your hope? So I got to give a bit of a forewarning to you this morning. And it's this. If Jesus is right that material wealth just so happens to be one of those topics that just so easily gets under our skin and creates angst, then you might not like what I have to say over the course of the next 35 minutes or so. It might pinch. And not only that, it just so happens to be the case that we're, we're pretty far behind our budget right now. And I know as a principal, as a preacher, you do not preach a sermon about politics the week before an election. No one's listening. No one's paying attention. All they're wondering is, does he agree with me or disagree with me? There's too much angst within the system to preach on that. And yet, here's what you got to know. I've had this in our preaching calendar for 10 months. And so the word of God has brought us here. And the prayer that I have had over the course of the last week is, Lord, use your word to build up your people so that we can become kingdom citizens. Have your Holy Spirit work through me. And if there's something here that I say this morning that's not of the spirit, Lord, please, please take it away from their ears. So you be praying for me as I share this with you. I asked Marcel and Adam if they're willing to trade with me and they said no. Psh. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Look at this again with me. 
Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So let's stop right there for a second. For any Jewish Christian reading this in the first century, they would know that Paul is addressing something called the first fruits principle. The first fruits principle. This was a principle that Jewish farmers in what was mostly an agrarian society would do with their crops. They would give to God, uh, the Hebrews, they would literally honor God with their first and their best. So the very first crop that popped up, they would give that to God in trusting that God would give them more, that he would provide for their needs. But their first and their best always was given to God, not their leftovers, Not what they had at the end of the day, their first and their best as an act of trust. And so there's numerous passages in scripture that address this. Let me just share one of of them with you. Proverbs chapter 3 is this, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. See, God knows something about our sin nature, the traitor within. He knows that for those of us who have material wealth, there is going to be a unique danger, spiritually speaking, for those of us who have accumulated it. And it is this, that we would be tempted to put our trust in the gifts of God as opposed to the giver of those gifts. That we would be tempted to put our trust in material wealth and things that can be taken away by thieves, where vermin can destroy it, where things can rust and break down. All these possessions that we have, we would put our security, our sense of identity, our sense of trust in material things and not in God. And Jesus says, and Paul says, don't put your trust in such things. And so here's here's the plain question that I want to lay out before you for the remainder of our time. I want you to be thinking about this. The key question is this. Are you giving your first and your best to God? Are you giving your first and your best to God? See, Scripture sees this as an act of worship. Imagine if you believed in your heart of hearts that you belong both body and soul in life and in death, in your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that it is he who provides for all of your needs. And you consider the sparrows. They do not wallow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more important are you than birds, Jesus says? And yet in everything, everything that we accumulate, everything we take in, we say, you know what, God, I trust you, but I got to create some hedges. I got to just make sure that things are taken care of. Otherwise, we might fall on hard times. And so the first fruits principle is don't give at the end. Don't like figure out if you got everything under control and then give to God out of the leftovers. Give your first and your best. That's the first fruits principle principle. And so another way that we can ask this question is, where have you placed your sense of identity and self-worth? Material possessions, maybe in your beauty or your looks, maybe in how well-liked you are by your peers, maybe in a particular gift that you have or an ability. All these are types of things that fade away 
or have you put your trust in something that is solid and will stand the test of eternity? Where have you placed your hope? In fact, uh, Paul says to his young Padawan Timothy, he says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So once again, Scripture tells us never to put our hope in wealth. And the text that we're looking at today that addresses this first fruits principle teaches us, practically speaking, how to put the principle of making the most of your mist into action. What does it look like to do that, practically speaking? A set of simple, clear-cut instructions. But before we jump into that, I think we need to click the pause button. Because we need to step back and understand the bigger picture of why God gives this command. Because here's the challenge that we have before us. When Paul gave this instruction on this first fruits principle, practically everyone who was listening instantly knew what he was talking about. Because they knew what we now call the Old Testament. They knew their Bible like the back of their hand. And for some of us here, we might not know that context, and so we might miss the forest for the trees. So I want to give you a brief overview of tithes and offerings within the Old Testament so that we can get a solid understanding of it. So the way I put it in your note sheet is this, how the tithe became a tip. How the tithe became a tip. And so our modern interpretation of generosity has dramatically shifted and changed from the first century context and even before the first century. And that's not on us. We're kind of like a fish saying, what is wetness, right? We're we're kind of um, recipients of our culture and, and the way that we often think about things. But we have to be rooted in scripture to understand what Paul is communicating to us today. So here's the first thing within that overview, how the tithe became a tip. Generosity has largely become an emotional response instead of a spiritual discipline. An emotional response as opposed to a spiritual discipline. Whenever it comes to generosity, everyone's for it. Am I right? We're all for it. But we often think in terms of what moves me or what is most compelling to me or if I feel led to do that. It's kind of like when you give a tip to a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant. Let's just suppose that waitress is doing a fantastic job. She got your order right. She's very timely. She keeps coming back to the table, refilling your water, giving you lots of bread, lots of snacks. She's really personable and funny and all the things that you want in a waitress. She's just constantly serving. At the end of that, you might go, oh my goodness, what a fantastic job she's done. I'm gonna give her a big tip, 20, 25, 30%. She just did so amazing. But then let's just suppose that you had a really negative experience with a waiter. and Like he's slow and he's bored and he's, he's not very kind or friendly. He's not refilling your drinks. The order, it took like 45 minutes for it to get to you. At the end of the meal, you're, you're quite frustrated and you're discouraged. 
You're like, he doesn't deserve a tip. I don't even want to give him like the obligatory 10%. You know, I, I don't want to give anything at all. And so it's entirely based, hear this, it's entirely based on your experience as a consumer. It's entirely based on your experience as a consumer, depending on how much of a tip you're going to give. Because most of us would rather give to a cause that we personally care about, which means that there's often strings attached to our generosity. If someone within an institution or a non-for-profit or even in a church, they do something you don't like, then you pull the string. You say, well, I don't want to give to that anymore because it's an emotionally based response. It's something that I only give if I feel compelled to do it. If I like what's going on or if I like what this agency is doing, then I will give, but only then. But that wasn't the perspective in the Old Testament. I mean, think about this with me. Was the temple in the Old Testament always a good place? No, of course not. Like they were downright corrupt and disobedient at certain times. And yet, did the people of Israel withhold their tithes? No, of course not. Because they believed in the principle that we give to God what is God's and God will deal with the rest. That's the principle that they had in their mind. It was a spiritual discipline, not an emotionally based response. And so that, so that leads to the second point I have here. The ancient tithes were a universal responsibility based on what God had provided given to support the temple and the needy. That's what it was. Do you know what the Hebrew word for tithe is? It is the word for a what? A tenth. That's what it means in Hebrew. A tithe is a tenth. And so each person was assigned to give out of what God had presented to them. And it was proportionate to their income, which means if you are given much, the Lord expected you to give out of the much that you had. And if you were given little, the Lord expected you to give of the little that you had. But it was always proportionate to your income. So in the Old Testament, there are six different tithes and offerings. I want to really quickly walk through them with you this morning, just for you to have a sense of it. The first is the temple tithe, with, which again, as a tithe, was 10% of their income. You can read about this in Leviticus 27, and this was given annually. That was their first tithe. The second was for their festivals and their celebrations. Again, an annual tithe, another 10% that they gave to the temple. And so that's 20%. The third was um, what we often call benevolence. And this is a tithe that they gave every three years for the downtrodden, the poor, the widow, the oppressed, the orphan, and the sojourner within their gates. Because I've shared with you before, God has special care for the little ones in his kingdom the poor and the oppressed. So every three years, a special tithe, an additional 10% over and above these two would be given for what we call benevolence. And that's one of the reasons why even to this day, we uh, give to benevolence on an ongoing basis. And then the fourth one, the fourth tithe is what is called the first fruits offering, which is what Paul's talking about here. You can read about that in Exodus 23 and 34. And this was given every harvest. Your first and your best was given to God. Before anything else, when you take in that harvest, the first is given to God. So when we think about tithe, it wasn't 10% to the people in the Old Testament. It was either 30 or 40% even before they gave of their offerings over and above that. 
And so there's two offerings. There's free will offerings, and they're all over Scripture. This is, the Lord has blessed me abundantly, and out of these blessings, I want to give freely to my neighbor. And then finally, there were gleanings for the poor. And the gleanings were the instruction from God where they were not allowed to glean the corners of their field, but you had to leave them for the poor, that they could come in and they could glean, they could work in order to provide for themselves or their families. Now, we're no longer under the Old Testament law any longer. You should see some of these function kind of like taxes do today. And the people of Israel, they were a theonomy, right? It was a theocracy. So these were their tithes, but it was also kind of like their taxes, But I want to talk with you about one of these offerings in particular, and it is the gleanings for the poor. So let me read this to you. Leviticus 23 says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord, your God. Now here's what's really interesting to me. I want to give you an image to think about. This is an acre of land. If you have $80,000, you can have one of these in Abbotsford. That's all you need. Here's an acre of land. When it, here's the instruction from the Lord. You have to leave the corners for the poor and the oppressed. But here's my question to you. What's a corner? What's an edge? Is this a corner? That represents an edge, doesn't it? Or what about this? Is this an edge? Those are a little bit bigger. Or how about this? Are these corners and edges? What's a corner? Here's what's really interesting when you think about this. One thing we know from scripture is that there were some people within Israel who had insanely large corners. You think about Boaz in the book of Ruth. This is Boaz. He has huge corners because he cares so much for the poor. And there are others who have tiny, tiny, tiny little corners. And technically, they're honoring the command of the book of Leviticus for them to leave their corners for the poor. And yet, they're not following the essence of God's desire. What is the essence of God's desire? It's the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and that you would love your neighbor the poor, the downtrodden, the widow, the sojourner, the orphan, you would love them as yourself. And the question is, how would I want them to treat me if we were in different positions? If I were them and they were me, how would I want them to treat me? How large would I want their corners to be? And so here's here's the thing, people of God. It's up to you to decide how large or how small your corners will be. The people of Israel, as tradition went, there there might be a situation in which uh, a, a father and a mother were considering giving one of their children to be married to another family. But you could imagine this in your mind. A father might go up to his daughter and say, honey, I, I realize you love that young boy over there. But that family has insanely small corners. In other words, they're not very generous. In other words, they do not put their trust in God. They've put their trust in themselves. And I just don't think that's a family that you want to hitch your wagon to. 
They are not faithful people. Do you see the essence of this principle, how it practically lived out on a day-to-day basis? The question that you have to ask yourselves is how large are your corners? How large are your corners? While a Christian should have the perspective that everything belongs to God, it's up to each of you to decide how large your corners are going to be or how small. I've shared with you before, you should worship whatever God you like Just make sure that God is worthy of your worship. And to the extent that he is worthy of your worship, worship him. No more, no less. How large are your corners? Or how small? So now I want to compare all that with what I'm calling the modern day tip. The modern day tip goes like this. It's often an emotionally based response based on a perceived need or what I have left over, and it's given to support what I care about most. So we've talked about this already. We usually give to things that pull at our heartstrings, right? It's, it's not a discipline per se. It's more of a response to things that resonate with me personally. Not only that, less and less are we giving out of our first and our best, and more and more we are giving out of what we have left over after we've created our own security nets. So let me give you a couple examples of this. The most recent research from Barna reveals that the average churchgoer, so not evangelical, not people who profess to be Christian, but people who are in the pews. The average church-going Christian in the U.S. and Canada gives just over 2% of their income per year. So it's more like a, a tooth than a tithe, right? But here's the second one, which is really interesting. One thing the people of Israel didn't have was taxable deductions. Aren't those nice? Uh, Now, don't hear me wrong. I use tax deductions. Even when I enter into TurboTax, there's this little tool that goes up and down, and I can figure out the exact amount that I should give to maximize my deductions. It's really helpful, right? And yet, I wish in my own heart, when I'm looking at that tool, that my first instinct would be, Lord, what an amazing opportunity to bless your kingdom even more as opposed to an implicit desire for me to try to maximize my donations and my deductions so that I can get more into my pocket, to my shame. And the third one, and this is the one that I just want to humbly lay out before you, and maybe this might be the one that pinches a little bit, but, but I feel compelled to share it with you. Gateway, this congregation is insanely generous. Insanely generous. Let me just give a couple examples of this to you. Every single year, you give thousands upon thousands of dollars to what we call our benevolence ministry. And we've talked about that already. Every single year, it's one of the greatest gifts that we give in terms of its total amount. Also, one of the the greatest contributions we make every year is when we give our, our offerings to the Canadian Food Grains Bank. And then it gets quadrupled by the government and you go all out and you make an incredible contribution. You also think about how over the last seven years you have opened up your doors for the extreme weather shelter to bless the most lowly in our community among us. Or think about when our neighbor, Lou's Grill, burned down. What was your first instinct? Well, they're not Christians, but they're our neighbors. You took an offering for them. You did the same thing with Heathstone down the street and you furnished their building. Time and time and time again, you do this. Think about what you did during the flood. We had the pantry and it was filled to the brim every single time we asked for more, you gave more. 
And when we established our Abbotsford Disaster Response Coalition, we've raised a cumulative 2.2 million, and you have contributed almost 300,000 of that. You are insanely generous. And so I bless God for that. I see it over and over and over again. So you have an incredible history of insane generosity with what scripture calls free will offerings. But I do think there's a growth area for some of us, not in our free will offerings, but in our first fruits offerings, giving our first and our best to God. And that's what 1 Corinthians 16 is all about. It's about our first fruits offerings. So with that as a background, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 16 again with me. This, te this text teaches us, practically speaking, how to move from an emotionally-based response to it becoming a spiritual discipline to the Lord that's as important as prayer, as important as faith, as reading my Bible, or any other spiritual discipline. So let's read those two verses again. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So there's three things that I see here as simple, clear-cut instructions from Paul to churches. And so here's the first one. The spiritual discipline of generosity should be scheduled and systematic scheduled and systematic it's phenomenal the difference with what we can do when we put something on our calendars isn't it no matter what the discipline whether it be uh, generosity or exercise or losing weight or um, doing our homework for school whatever it might be when something is scheduled and systematic it gets done but if it's not what happens it gets crowded out it gets crowded out by more urgent things, more pressing things. It's the same reason why, friends, gyms are full in January and they're empty in August. In January, we have such great aspirations, such great goals. Like, I'm going to sign up for that gym membership. This is going to be the year. And then by August, you know, it's kind of faded out. It's kind of done. Unless, of course, it's something that's scheduled and systematic. Maybe you have an accountability partner. Maybe you have a coach. Maybe it's something that you put into your calendars and you get reminders when you need to leave work and to go to the gym. You have these sort of systems in place to make sure that it's front and center all the time. And then you got a chance to still be there in August. But, but here's the thing, friends. If we don't schedule and systematize things, urgent things crowd them out. That's the principle. And so Paul wants to teach them to make giving to God a priority and not an afterthought. So to get really practical with you, that's the reason why many churches, including ours, used to have the envelope system, right? You had an envelope for every single week. And then you would bring that envelope and you would put it in the offering plate. Right? And today we have a similar method. You can do online recurring donations through e-transfer, through online giving. But the, pr the principle is the same. Make it something that is scheduled and systematic. So for Julie and I in our house, there's, there's only three things that we schedule and systematize in this order. Number one, our tithes. Number two, our savings. And number three, whether we like it or not, our mortgage. We'll get there one day. Our mortgage. In that order. 
And even at the end of the year, when we sit down and we say, okay, can, can we give more? Can we contribute more? There's always this implicit desire like, you know what? We could probably give a couple extra hundred bucks a month toward our mortgage. That would be really good. But we also look at it in a certain order. How much can we contribute over and above our tithes this year in the way that the Lord has blessed us? Always in that order, our first and our best goes to God. And then after that, we say, okay, what can we contribute to our savings? What can we contribute to our mortgage? Because we're trying to live into this principle to the best of our ability. So for some of you, you'd much rather have something physical in your hand, which is fine, but the point remains, make it scheduled, make it systematic. Here's the second one. It needs to be universal. Universal, and you'll see here that I, I have in brackets mirrors, not binoculars. Here's, here's what I mean by that. If you look at your text again, Paul says, each one of you, do you see that? Each one of you should set aside a sum of money. So that means giving is something that God calls every Christian to do, not just those who are looking for extra credit, but everyone who wants to be a kingdom citizen, but you've listened to my preaching for the last four years. You know that, that I don't like binoculars. I like mirrors. So every single time we read the word of God, we have to ask ourselves, Lord, what are you calling me to do in this? As opposed to it being some sort of indictment on your neighbors or on someone else saying like, you're not giving enough. You're not doing good enough. But it's more, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Out of the blessings that you have given to me, how do you want me to contribute to your kingdom? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak to myself, and I invite you to listen in. Here's what I see scripture saying to me. It's saying, Justin, you are called to give your first and your best to me. No exceptions, no excuses. Justin, none of this is coming with you anyway. Your life is a mist you are here today, you are gone tomorrow, and I have given you gifts and abilities, I have given you finances and margin, I have given you so many different resources to use at your disposal. Now here's the goal, don't build up your own little mini kingdom over and against my kingdom, but establish for yourself a principle in your mind, how can I build up God's kingdom? How can I have my eyes fixed on things that are eternal as opposed to things that are temporary for the sake of my pleasure or my security or my comfort or any of those things? And so that's the principle that I see scripture saying to me. Number three, it needs to be proportionate. Proportionate. Look again at verse two. Paul says, on the first day of every week, set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So proportionate means the more I'm blessed, the more generous I become. Now, once again, I'm going to lean on Barna here. Here's what we know amongst Christians in the U.S. and Canada. And this, this is not to say anything about any of us here because I know some people who have such great wealth and they are incredibly generous. But according to Barna, the more you get, the less likely you are to give. But I think for most of us, we feel like it's the opposite way. Like if you make $50,000 a year, you're thinking to yourself, if I made 100, man, I'd give way more. If you're making 100, you say, if I made 200, I'd give way more. I'd be way more generous. I'd have more margin. Everything would be better. I'd give more. And yet we know, according to statistics, the more money you make, 
the less likely you are to give. Why is that the case? Why is that the case? Because money, because of our sin nature, the traitor within, is deceptive in that it causes us to want to put our hope and our trust in it. That's why Jesus says what he says in Matthew chapter 6. We're not just talking about material wealth. We're talking about things that have the ability to deceive us and to corrupt our souls. So I I know you're thinking, Justin, how much does the Bible say I have to give? I just want to know the number. You know, is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Like, what am I supposed to give? What's the amount? Just tell it to me so that I can know. All the type A's are like, put me out of my misery. Give me the number. And yet, you'll never find that in the New Testament. You'll never find it. I can share with you what the early church was doing. Let me just share two quotes with you. The first is from Augustine. He said this, let every Christian render tithes and out of the nine parts, let him give alms, which is giving to the poor. So give your 10% to your local church and then give uh, additional offerings to the poor. That was the way that Augustine put it. But I love what Irenaeus says. He says this, the Jews were constrained. I love that word constrained it felt like taxes the jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes but christians who have liberty assign all their possessions to the lord because they have the hope of greater things so so what is he saying the goal isn't to give your your 10% temple tax and move on the goal is dear christian for you to be a steward of all you have and all you are for the sake of the gospel of jesus christ and it's up to you to figure out what that looks like and what that means so i've shared this with you before some of us give sufficiently and live extravagantly but the point paul is making what he wants to impress upon your heart is this that we would live sufficiently and give extravagantly knowing that none of it is coming with us so why does god care so much about generosity why is it so important to him Why does he give more than 2,300 at-bats for us to engage with material wealth and how we use it? Is it because he needs all of our money in order to build up his church? No. No, the only promise that Christ makes in terms of institutions that will remain and stand the test of time is the local church. The local church, kingdoms rise and fall, but the word of God stands forever. And the church will always be built and I believe in this so strongly. I just got to say, if you showed up today and it's your very first Sunday here and you're like, wow, it took one Sunday for a preacher to talk about giving money. Here, here's, here's what I'd love to just kind of impress upon your heart. I would encourage you to give somewhere else until you can make sure for yourself that our motives are pure. But my encouragement to you is this. Give to God what is God's. Give to God what is God's. Because the way that we use our money is an outward reflection of an inward reality. The question I started with was this. Are you giving your first and best to God? Are you making the most of your mist? I shared with you that the only two things in eternity that will last forever is the word of God and the souls of people. So how can we become people who practice the spiritual discipline of generosity? 
do we tell ourselves, you just got to try harder. You just got to work harder. You got to do better. No, that's not going to change your heart. Maybe, maybe it'll change your giving patterns for a while, but it will not change your heart. We are no longer under the gospel. We are under Christ. We're no under the, longer under the law, sorry. We're under Christ. And so what that means is the only way for us to change our hearts truly is if we look at the gospel, if we see Jesus for who he truly is. So friends, as we close today, I want you to see Jesus. I want you to behold him with this story. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Did he not? And there he went to pray. Do you know what Gethsemane means? It is the Hebrew get shemanin, which means olive press or oil press. Now that's interesting. I shared with you already that any instance of the first fruits principle in this agrarian society is that any farmer, whenever they brought in their yield, the first thing that they did is they gave their first and their best to God. So depending on what, um, what they were harvesting, let's say it was grain or it was wool or maybe it was olives. Maybe it was olives. What they would do is they'd give their first and their best to God. So here's a picture I'd love for you to look at, this next picture. This is a picture of an olive press that we saw when we were in Israel this past summer. This is, this is a small one. But they would take in all the olives that they received, they would put them in here. And the first press all the way around would be given to God. And then the rest would go toward their family for them to live off of. But the first press was always given to God. So back to our story of Jesus in the garden of the olive press. He's praying and he says this. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. You sense the desperation. Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other philosophy, if there's any other plan, if there's any other religion, Lord, if there's any other way, please, Lord, don't make me go to the cross. Don't make me have to endure such agony and pain. If there's any other way, please, Lord, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like the drops of blood falling to the ground. Friends, have you ever wondered what the drops of blood are all about? Now you have the eyes to see that the drops of blood in the garden of the olive press is Jesus submitting himself to his father. It's his tithe, so to speak. He's giving his first and his best to God. He's saying, Heavenly Father, all that I have and all that I am is yours. Teach me to put my trust in you. Teach me to put my sense of security in you. Teach me to put my identity in you. Teach me to give you everything. All of myself is yours to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. Lord, I am yours. And he spills blood. So then the next question is, what's going on at the cross when the rest of Jesus' blood is being poured out? You have to see, friends, that what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's giving the rest of himself to us. To us.
That's the example of someone who is locked into the Shema. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the question, friends. As you consider your first fruits offerings, we're not talking about money. We're not talking about money. We're talking about this question. Where have you placed your identity? Where have you placed your sense of hope? Where have you placed your sense of security? Do you want to make a kingdom contribution in the world? And so Jesus says, look at my example. Look at the gospel. I have yielded control to my heavenly father. And I gave everything else to my neighbor. Everything else. And so you might be saying, oh, okay, well, is that a tithe? Is that a certain percentage? That's not the point. The point is, will you be a kingdom-minded uh, kingdom person who says, all that I have and all that I am is yours? What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway. <laughs>